With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. A lot of the stories you talk about are obviously people who are not used to fighting. They're civilians, for lack of a better word. They're, in many cases, smaller. And I think this is also kind of a Bruce Lee-style cliche, which is, use the energy and the force of the other person on your side. So in this case, he's using the strength of the other person to kind of pull that person down in order to get what he wants. Right. That seems like a lot of what the solution is, is always use as much, like almost like outsource the energy to the other person. Yeah. And it seems like that's a strong principle here. Yeah, and you want to create a situation where you can make physics and physiology meet badly. Physics and physiology meet badly. I like that phrase. Yeah, it's really what you're trying to replicate because... When somebody says, well, I'm only, say, 90 pounds, what could I do? Well, do you want? does anybody want 90 pounds dropped on their throat? Does anybody want 90 pounds dropped in a lot of these vulnerable areas of the human body? When you went back to that whole concept of the smaller guy being the most dangerous, really what we're, we're finding is if you look at that situation, the smaller guy knows how to employ all of his body weight into these, these vulnerable areas of the human body. And they understand that for pure survival. They don't want to compete on bigger, faster, stronger. And so they learn early on, that's the way they can survive. And that's really essentially what we can teach just about everybody. Tim Larkin, you haven't been on the podcast in three years, but a lot's happened. We're here to talk about your book, When Violence is the Answer, Learning How to Do What It Takes When Your Life is at Stake. So, Tim... Welcome to the show. Thank you. This is the first time in person. Last time we did it on Skype. And I still remember so many stories you told me then because somehow we remember violence. Right. And you would tell you have basically violent story after violent story. And somehow it's like, I mean, that was three years ago. I don't even remember who was on my podcast in 2014, but I remember all the stories you told me, like when when you were tempted to fight a guy who pulled over. You, you almost got into a road rage incident, but the guy's son was in the back and, and right. you didn't want to do that. See, I remember. It's from three years ago, almost yeah. four years ago now. Um, but uh, And then I remember another story, which I always remembered, which is um, the guy who was robbed, I think it was in Central Park, but it might have been another park. Uh, a guy was robbed in a park. He figured the transaction was done, and so he just starts walking out of the park, and the criminals figure they're already walking away, but then they figure, oh, this guy might... 
report us or turn us in or something. So they go back and kill him. Right. And and your point there was, is that the guy who was like a lawyer or something, he thought violence, the, the mugging was transactional. Oh, they threatened violence, I'll give them my wallet and then the transaction's over. Whereas violence is not transactional. Crazy stuff happens and you have to think like the bad guys. Right. And that's and I feel when I read this book, which just came out, When Violence is the Answer, which is a great book, story after story, technique after technique, your own experiences, I feel like that's the overriding theme is that we live in this society where there's kind of rules of etiquette almost, but there's not really rules of etiquette when someone's trying to kill you or, or maim you or harm you. And I think that part of your point is that, and part of your point is that doesn't matter your size, shape, whatever. There are techniques you can do and learn easily that chances are the attackers don't know. They're playing with their guns or their knives, but you could do stuff that protects yourself. Right. And the key to that is for people to understand that it, we tend to look at the differences in human in human bodies. You know, so we'll we'll look at somebody else. Oh my, this guy's bigger, faster, stronger. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm helpless. Therefore, there's nothing I can do. And what you learn, you know, by looking at the way predators look at violence, and the reason I go to places like, you know, the prison gangs and, and how they look at it is that violence is very transactional for them as far as it's their source of currency. And so they have to get it right. They can't afford to have opinions. They have to get results. And so that type of thinking is actually extremely useful when you look at your own self-protection. When they look at somebody that's bigger, faster, and stronger, they don't see bigger, faster, and stronger. They see he has a throat like me. He has knees like me. He has uh, you know, a groin like me. He has eyes like me. They see the similarities, the similar vulnerabilities that the human body has. And that is, that is a key mind shift that people need to take for their own self-protection. I sort of feel like, like even, in, and this is just naive, but even in the movies, they always say, watch out for the smaller mean guy because he's going to be much more aggressive because he knows he's smaller and mean. He's going to be much more aggressive about all the different ways to take down the bigger guy. Yeah, well, there's, a, there's actually some, some real truth to that, uh, especially in the criminal class. The smaller individuals tend to be a, a lot of the uh, top assassins aren't necessarily the biggest guys. Um, what do you mean by top assassin? So in, in a prison gang, you'll have the the soldiers, but then you'll have shot callers, and those are the those are like the the uh, the decision makers. They're the uh, they're probably the leadership gang. Like in Mexican mafia, there's approximately 150 of them. And they run tens of thousands, but they are they are the 150 people that kind of are the executive branch of it, and they 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 promote through the successful use of the tool of violence. They also have to be extremely smart. They have to be, you know, uh, I, I play a video in one of my uh, presentations, and it shows Rene Enriquez, and he is uh, somebody that left the Mexican mafia, but he was one of the major shot callers for them. When you hear him speak, it was a law enforcement video, when you hear him speak, except for the neck tattoo, you can see a little bit of the neck tattoo, he, his, the way his hair is cut, his glasses and everything, he speaks like a Fortune 100 executive, like a CEO, and he conducts himself that way. And he talks about the development of, of a true leader within the Mexican Mafia. And it is a similar path that you would see, say like, I equated it to like the special operations community. You know, young young officers have to be educated a certain way. Here's the books they read. Here's the mindset that they have. Same thing in the corporate environment. You know, a lot of the books that they read uh, in Mexican Mafia and in like uh, the uh, 
Aryan Brotherhood and Black Gorilla Family are all very similar to a lot of the corporate books people tell you to read. Like what, what books? Things like The Art of War, 48 Laws of Power. Uh, you've got abnormal psychology that they look at. Anything that helps them understand how to control humans. Um, it, it's very, very useful to them. Um, but the, where everything goes off, where, where say the corporate world or the military world, um, where it diverges is the one area that they study that the other areas that the other disciplines don't study is they study human anatomy. And they both say it the same only the two, I had one guy from the Aryan Brotherhood and one guy from the Mexican Mafia and they essentially said the same thing. We have to understand how to kill. That's our, that is our status mobility system, the successful use of violence. And the most efficient way to learn that is through looking at human anatomy. They're just very straightforward about it. And, and I try to tell people, understanding human anatomy is really the Rosetta Stone to your own self-protection because human anatomy is something that we all possess. And the areas that they're talking about in the human body that they consistently go to are the areas that can't be protected through conditioning, through strength, through any sort of training. We're all inherently vulnerable in these areas. Um, and then the area, and the best studies for that, the best information that you can get from that is from sports medicine information because sports medicine are injuries that where humans collide with humans and humans collide with the planet. So, so, I, I wanna I wanna just ask though, how did this guy get out of the Mexican mafia? He was targeted. Uh, he, he and he's very he's he's very straightforward. It's extremely paranoid at the top, obviously, with these guys and violences. You can you can be put on a hit list very quickly, and oftentimes if you're too successful, you have to be careful not to be too successful. Um, and he was a very successful. Um, uh, he was a very successful leader in his area, but he was threatening people. And they threatened him and his family, and he realized that, you know, he was on the list, and there's no way he's getting off, and so he de he defected. Hmm. And um, the law enforcement interviews that I have of him, it's a series of about uh, probably probably eleven, twelve hours of information, and each one's broken down by different categories. The one I share with the general public, which is okay, I got okay to do that, is the education portion, which is very interesting to me because. What law enforcement and everybody's concerned about, you know, everything they're concerned about, um, is more kind of the the nuts and bolts of how they run their organization. But the, the, the area that they let me share is probably the whole, it's like saying, okay, but here's where all the money is. Here's where all the currency is. This is where they derive all their power. And they had no problem letting me release that part of the information. And, and to me, it's really interesting. In fact, when I started talking to top corrections officials, at first I wanted to talk about how how these these guys survived in this petri dish of asocial violence, how they operated, how they looked at violence. And at first, the officers thought, "Oh, you're these guys. We got them under control. No problem." They thought somehow I was challenging their ability to control these guys. And I said, "No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not looking at that. What I want to look at is how do they operate? How do they survive in this situation? How do they look at violence? How do they talk about it? How do they, you know, when you're interviewing them and all of a sudden they, you know, all of a sudden they got really relaxed and they go, wow, nobody's ever asked that before. Like, how do you operate in an asocial environment? And the reason that's useful to us, the story that you just told about the young lawyer, and that was actually in London where it happened. Um, he didn't understand. He couldn't read the asocial cues. Mm -hmm. What what he saw, what he thought was transactional, um, was transactional at the point where they left. What he didn't anticipate was the fact that these guys, while walking away with all the stuff they just took from him, realized, oh, he 
he saw her face. Hmm. And they literally, that was it, the one comment, he saw her face, and the other goes, yeah. And they turned around, drew their knives, and ran the guy down. And what he didn't understand was that second time when they came there, they gave all the asocial cues. There was no communication, knives were drawn, heads were down, and the only thing that would have worked in that situation would have been to be able to use the tool of violence. And that's where most people don't, it, it's where the, the, the top level of the prisoner class, you know, the, 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 the incarcerated, they understand that inherently. They recognize a social right away. So, so you started off with the, um, um, the prison, the prison gangs, there are the shot callers and then there's, what's after that? It's the soldiers. And so what you have is you, you have, it's funny. He, he talks about, he said, what the general public normally thinks of when they think of a prison gang or, or gangs in general is they think of what he calls the no accounts. And he said the no accounts are the knuckle draggers. They're this, you know, they're the worthless, tough knuckle draggers. And we use them. He said, but yeah, they don't, they don't go, they don't make any decisions. They just do whatever we tell them to do. And what, what, what we don't realize is there's a level of intelligence at the top that is, you know, rivals anything that we have in any corporation. Like, did he have to kind of rise up through that group, though? Yeah. So yeah. he had to be one of them. Through, through, and he's funny. He said, our status mobility system, which is successful acts of violence, that's what it's, you can, you can set up a really good uh, drug setup and you can have, you know, a lot of good money coming in, but you still have to be successful using tool of violence. They have to know that you can, can murder people, that you can, um, it's the only way that they enforce their territories. So they have to know that if someone's going to be a leader, that they're going to be able to, you know, accurately take care of business or right. violence if, if need be to protect their turf. It would be like evaluating a CEO with his ability to use capital and, you know, run a business, make profit and, and market. But it's all determined. It's all determined by these successful acts. It's, it's how they make money. They literally, what I try to tell people is the top leaders in these gangs are most of them, the most of the, the, the senior leadership for the most part is incarcerated up to 23 hours a day. They have one hour a day. They have low tech to no tech that is available to them. Yet they run organizations that literally run billions of dollars. They have tens of thousands of distributors and they have to do it through very limited communication means. Mm. And so it's a very strict group. And the reason I look at them is not to glorify them in any way, shape, or form. But what I try to tell people is, you look, you know, the best information often comes from the worst people when it comes to your own self-protection. And it's worth looking at how they survive in an environment like that so that we better can anticipate when things have gone asocial. Right, and just to be clear, your, your book isn't about prison gangs, but how basically to use the, the tools or at least the cues from the bad guys so that anybody who's attacked, like you have the descriptions of a, a you know, a, a petite woman doing shopping who's attacked, you know, putting groceries into her car, how a person like that could basically fight off, you know, someone much bigger, more equipped, whatever, you know, using the tools at, at her disposal. Right. And, and the useful information that you get out of looking at groups like the prison gangs and everything is to do two things. By understanding them, you realize these aren't superhuman people. There's nothing superhuman about them. They've developed their intent to do harm, for sure. Um, but they also have a methodology that we can replicate for our own self-protection. And that's the interesting part is that, you know, it's almost like we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. There's, there's, we basically told ourselves that if we study violence, and I actually, I have to credit you 
with violence. You named the last podcast Necessary Violence, and I used that as an argument to get this book title with my... With, oh, with good. And, I'll, take, and, I'll take full and, credit. And, no, and I, I actually really appreciated that you did that because the, they were up until the Pulse nightclub shooting, my my uh, publisher was fighting me left and right about using the term violence. They thought it was going to be a limiting term and they didn't really understand. And then, then unfortunately, all the shootings started to happen and they quickly realized that this was a very relevant topic. Um, well, how did you get? How did you get to this point where, like, I know you were in, you know, military intelligence, or uh, uh, you know, you you have a history with all this, but it's not like you just trained in a gym. Like, you've this was hardcore career for you for twenty years, twenty yeah. plus years. So, what what was what was your what's your secret origin story? I uh, my, when I when I went in, I, I went in. I was a Navy brat and went in with every intention of becoming a SEAL officer. That's what I wanted to do. Um, I actually, my dad's last command. Brought us to Coronado, California, and um, great city, by the way. Oh, it's great! And, but, but the Navy housing that I lived in literally was across the street, right across the highway from the SEAL training base, the Basic Underwater Demolition School. Huge! As a little kid, you're looking over and you see this huge obstacle course. Mm-hmm. My brother and I just decided that was our own personal playground, mm-hmm. and so we'd be getting kicked off. We'd we'd chop the fence and we'd we'd get over there and we'd jump on the on the uh, obstacles and we'd be kicked off all the time. But after a while. They understood, hey, we were just normal Navy kids, and they, they would let us sit off in the sand dunes, and they'd let us watch training a little bit, you know? Um, and we got to know the guys. And so I understood there was this, I had no idea in the Navy, there was this job where you could jump out of airplanes, swim, dive, shoot things, blow things up, and you got paid for it. Because um, I had only known my dad's side of the Navy, which was, you know, being in ships. And so I was just fascinated. And uh, this was before the SEALs became very popular. This is like uh, late 70s, early 80s, you know, time frame. Um, so I was enamored with it, just started training for it. And um, I, it was, I had this unfair advantage because I knew everything about SEAL training. I knew how to prepare myself for it. Um, I prepared myself in college for it. Uh, I was up against a lot of people to get two slots. I got one of the two slots you know, to go. And I flew through training. Training was just easy for me. And, it, and like I said, it was unfair. Were you an athlete in college? Like, did you- when I was in college? Did yeah. I, oh yeah, I was an ROTC. Okay, and, and then did you participate in like any sports or anything? Yeah, I did a little bit. Um, I, mainly, mainly what I did was uh, uh, I did a lot of swimming and a lot of I did everything with the idea of what was going to get me prepared for what I wanted to do. And so, swimming, water polo, uh, you know, anything that got me used to being in the water all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also made sure I tested everything. I went and made sure I, I jumped out of an airplane and make sure I wasn't scared of that. You know, I made sure I went through dive training so I wouldn't be uncomfortable. I just wanted to make sure that I took care of myself prior to. So you were in. just like, like during the boot camp part when they tried to break you down. That oh, was yeah. like nothing. It was. It was. It w- well, it was really rigorous and really challenging. But there was nothing that surprised me. Um, I, I made it, I, I, somebody taught me to take, make things 10 times worse in your head so that you keep expecting it to get worse and worse and it doesn't at some point and you go, oh, okay, I can handle this, you know? And mm-hmm. So you play these mind games with yourself. And the other great thing they told me during training, which I've applied to a lot of things is don't think beyond the next meal. You know, if you sit there and, and you, you feel like quitting, you tell yourself, okay, I'm going to quit at lunch. And then you get to lunch, you get a little bit of hot cocoa in you, you know, you warm up a little bit and you go, okay, I'm going to quit at dinner. And so you just kind of went from, from little, little marks to little marks. So, so don't think ahead of the, um, next meal and, uh, imagine it could be 10 times worse, which some people say, uh, don't always imagine the worst case scenario, but it's a very stoic attitude to say, okay, you know, 
I'll imagine it ten times worse. Here's how I'll handle it. And then when it's not that bad, you know, you, you, you it's easier for you. Yeah, and, and and mentally, you know, you you know the instructors, and the instructors, their job is to break you down. And so, if you imagine whatever you think they're going to do, and you you imagine something that's actually worse, and then it doesn't happen, it actually emboldens you and said, okay, I survived that. You know, um, whereas other guys who kind of did the positive thinking aspect of things, you know, oh, I can, you know, I'm tougher on this. You, you're going to create doubts in yourself very quickly mm. because it, that's that's their specialty. Yeah, that's going to break you down. Well, you're feeding into what the instructors want you to think, and then that that works against you. Uh, so, so this is a, this is a really stupid question now, but like. If if you're entering into that boot camp, and again, just dumb question, naive, how many push-ups in a row should you be able to do on day one of boot camp before you enter into that boot camp? Like how 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 many? <laughs> just yeah. Well, I got to the point to where I could do uh, you know over a hundred push-ups. You know, and get. But I worked on that for years. Uh -huh. And again, that the other thing with that is it's all incremental. You know, I don't start out with 100 push-ups. You know, what I would do is I'd break down. I'd say, throughout the day, I'm going to do 100. Huh. And so it might be five here, 10 here. And then after a while, you start testing yourself. The, the thing on all of this and any one of these things that I've always learned, even in business, is just the little steps that you, you, you gradually improve. That's the most important thing. Because if you look at the whole, you know, where you want to go, it's overwhelming, hmm. you know, at times. And so... I just kind of applied a lot of what I learned in training back then. Um, and the, the interesting part for me in my origin story, though, is, you know, and the reason it's so important that I tell people about Bigger, Faster, Stronger is that was me. I was Bigger, Faster, Stronger. I was arrogant. I flew through training, had my guys all squared away because I was a team officer. You know, I was, I was a boat captain officer, and my, my boat group did great. We won Hell Week, which is that five-day evolution where they keep you up the whole time. It was kind of unfair because I already knew where to hide food. I knew I had been so prepped by you know all those years of a little kid, you know, hanging out with the seals. Um, and it got to a couple weeks before the end of training, and we were in you know just a basic dive phase. I'd already been to the point to where I was I was heading to be the anchor man of the class, which is kind of like the number one you know guy that gets uh, recognized in the class. I had my selection of teams to go to, and I, at that time I picked a really great team that was doing all the work. Um, at that time, and I was just full of myself, you know, and we're doing this no what was supposed to be a no big deal dive this one day and I went I had congestion and I had a series of bad ears when I was a kid You know, I, I used station two plugs in my ears and you know I knew that was a weakness I had to worry about but so far I'd been fine Well, I pushed it. I didn't want to redo the dive. So I forced myself to do the dive this day and People know, like on the surface, you know, you, we have waves and you see thing, you see water move. Well, it also happens below the surface, you know, like water comes through. And as I was focused on, we were at that time we were tying explosives onto these uh, obstacles, you know, and we were just simulating uh, an amphibious landing. And I felt a wave of water hit my ear, and it was just enough to burst my eardrum. Mm. And I felt water, you know, like a sharp spike of water go right up in the middle of my head mm. and then i felt warm fluid go out of me and that's when i lost all control of my body that's when i went into vertigo and <clears throat> the only way i got up very lucky that i got to the surface and i and i got to the surface and they said when i hit the surface my head was you know just flapping in the water they pulled me on and literally in less than under a minute my career was done you know, they took one look at my ears. There was no way they were going to heal correctly so I could pressurize dive. And here I am at 20, you know, 21. I'd only been, you know, planning for this. And this is the first time 
I had ever come in contact with a true injury to the human body. I mean, I'd been hit, I'd been hurt, I'd been, you know, cracked ribs, things like that, but I could gut through all that stuff. This was something where I had no ability to control it at all. My, it was the first time my brain basically betrayed my body. And um, to me, I thought it was the end of my world. And it started to be on this journey of, you know, understanding, well, hey, there's, now the 21 year old me, Andrew didn't know this. But. Like what did, at 21, when you realize, oh my gosh, I've been going for this since I was five years old. And now it's not going to happen. It was devastating. It was, uh, I, that community is a shark tank. And what's interesting is I went from being the alpha to just a pariah, meaning because it's seen as weakness an injury is seen as weakness. And rightfully so, I understand the mentality of it. But all of a sudden I was just like, people don't even want to talk to you. They don't want anything to rub off on you, on them at that point, because you know, they, they see yeah. you there and it was humiliating. And how'd you get out of that, that funk? Well, it was interesting. They kept me in the community, not obviously not as a SEAL, but I had enough training and it was a unique time in the, in the, um, in the SEAL teams that uh, they had just joined the Special Operations Command. So we had just gone purple, which everybody's working together with everybody. So we're working with Air Force, Army, under the Special Operations Command where everybody used to be separate. So there was a real need for more bodies. Um, they saw me as the ability to go to a staff command and not be a healthy body, not take up a healthy body at the staff command. So they sent me to intelligence school and I became an intelligence officer, special warfare intelligence officer. And they put me in a position that I had no business being. I worked directly for the Admiral of the SEAL teams. You know, it was Naval Special Warfare Command. Um, uh, the Admiral was Admiral Lemoyne and I was given an intelligence position that really should have been somebody probably three to four ranks above of me at that point. Um, like what did you have to do? What was the difference between intelligence and and? Well, you, you don't do any of the operational stuff. So I'm just you know here I am basically I'm I'm with the legends of the SEAL teams because the admiral assigned you know just put in the best guys because this was right when Berlin Wall was going down and so they knew the whole world was about to change. They basically predicted what we're dealing with today mm -hmm. and they realized that the training that we did for the Soviets was not going to be adequate for the future and so they had to change things. And one of the things they realized was they were going to have to start putting hands on people again and uh, there's going to be more house-to-house -house type of things. And they hadn't done any of that since Vietnam mm -hmm. and so they started looking at you know, the idea of, it was derided back then too, the idea of hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's not like, it was pre-UFC, pre-all that. So it wasn't looked at as real warfare. You know, real warfare was, you know, you shoot people. You know, it's, it's gunfighting. Um, but the guys from Vietnam that had to deal with, you know, deal with that kind of stuff before, they realized, no, we need this training. So they started looking at all different martial arts. Well, I had a martial arts background. I had three different black belts, you know, that I got as a kid. Growing up on all these Navy bases, you know, we just did stuff. But it was Korean arts. It wasn't the Korean arts and a little bit of judo. Um, so it wasn't what we have today with the MMA. There's so many amazing ways you can train today. Um, but they liked me. I was a young guy. They knew I did okay in training. I had no experience whatsoever. And they brought me in to this group that was evaluating hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, and they brought me in not for any other reason than I was a convenient, basically a meat puppet for them. I was a young guy they could throw around and they knew I could take it. And, uh, and they liked my attitude. That was it. Uh, I had no business being there with those guys. I stumbled on because I had a lot of different connections in the intelligence community. I had DEA connections and all these other people I had to outreach to for the command. One day, here we are bringing in these martial arts from all over the world. I mean, top guys. 
And one day my DEA buddy calls me up and just says, hey, you guys still doing that punchy kicky stuff? And he laughed about it because he thought it was ridiculous that we were you know, training that. And I said, yeah, he goes, well, there's this guy. He goes, he's he's a real, you know, he's an expletive. He's a real, real asshole, but you get along with him. You, you, you know, and what he meant was, which is true, I get along with people who are difficult. I, I get along with people that other people would think are difficult to deal with. Um, I find often they have great information, but they have very low tolerance for people that don't get it, you know, right away or challenge them. Uh, they tend to be dogmatic. Um, and this, this guy that he was talking about was a lot like that. He's a former vet. Um, he was a vet, a Vietnam vet, and he was in uh, 173rd Charlie, which was a really, uh, they saw a lot of combat. He was a tunnel guy, so he was a tunnel rat that went in. And when I went by to see the studio, it was closed. And the only thing that got me to go back was this little flyer that basically said he was in the military and here was his military. And I recognized that. Mm-hmm. He literally was less than a mile away from where I was living in PB, in, in Pacific Beach in, in San Diego. And I'm sitting here thinking the whole time, this DA, I go, I bet my DA buddy is just screwing with me because you're not going to tell me that there's a relevant guy that literally lives less than a mile away from me and we're flying people in literally from all over. Sure enough, I go there, I see it. And what I walk into is basically, I see these kids and they're in geese, but they're all like probably like some range of college, you know, probably 18 to you know, mid-20s at the best. But what I look at, I'm looking at what essentially I saw as like a kind of a slow motion, you know, just prison brawl. I Like one of the first things I saw was a guy hit a guy to the side of the neck, grab his hair, a knife comes out of nowhere and he starts stabbing the guy with a knife. And I looked at it, but it wasn't done, it, it looked like real violence I had seen, you know, before, albeit slower, more deliberate, and I knew right away this is something different. And I, I recognized it for what it was. So I, I met the instructor, and the instructor was a very low-key guy. He was no, he, he, he was in jeans and an Oahu shirt, you know, like a, a Aloha shirt. And he just kind of walked around and, you know, would say a couple things to somebody, switch them up, and they'd go do it. He wasn't like a chess beater or anything like that, but very straightforward information. And he wasn't a formally educated guy, but he understood injury to the human body. Um, he was calling what he did kung fu, but it wasn't kung fu, mm. you know. Um, so I trained with a guy for a while, and sure enough, you know, fast forward, the other guys that I'm training with, the other seals, were training probably two to three times a week. They notice I start doing things differently, and when they find out I've been training with somebody and haven't told them, they weren't happy about that. You know, they thought I was holding out on them. Were you starting to like kick their asses? It wasn't that. I was just I was much more efficient. I was all of a sudden doing things. I was all of a sudden inside, and, and I was able to to get into areas of the human body we hadn't been training. You know, like really, really direct areas of the human body. Is that just like, is that just like a a practicality? Is there some kind of like biological uh, defense mechanism where we don't want to think we can go directly through the throat because we don't want it to happen to us? So we're so resistant against even thinking about it, doing it to someone because yeah. because because our brain doesn't want it to happen to us. We don't. We don't reciprocate. The, that, that's why context is so key when you're presenting this material. And that's why you have to, that's the reason we don't seek out really good, effective, straightforward information on self-protection because oftentimes it's shown in the wrong context. It's shown in the context of a bar fight. It's shown in the context of something that we we see the scenario that the instructor is, is, uh, is pointing us towards and we know inherently that 
the the violence shown is not warranted. And therefore, we dismiss everything because we think that's criminal and I don't want to be criminal. So even at the SEAL level, <clears throat> they're, they're not doing the things as easily and efficiently as you. Is the brain still, like even at that level, are they kind of resistant to that extreme violence? Every human every human is that way at the beginning. Now, this was all pre-war. You know, you know, we have a very different uh, we have a very different situation that we face now. We've got, you know, over a decade of war, and uh, the the warriors that we have now, especially in the special operations community, are very comfortable with the information. Back then, it was pre really not a lot was going on. Only the very special units really had any any combat experience during that time. And then the unique group that I was working with were all combat vets from the Vietnam area, mm. and they were you know they they were great. Um, they were very straightforward. Um, so yeah, there's this resistance that we as humans have, and rightfully so. It's what makes society work. So, you know, the, the vast majority of us don't want to injure each other. We don't right. want to use violence to uh, get our way. Um, and that's very positive. So, so you went back into these, the SEALs saw you were doing something differently. Did you start training them in what you were doing? or No, it wasn't. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm this, you know, you got to understand, I'm a, I'm a low-level officer with zero background. I didn't even make it through training because I got injured. So my credibility level, at least in my mind, was next to zero. Um, what I did do, though, they they wanted to meet the instructor. And what was really interesting to me was they recognized his credentials right away from the military standpoint. Mm. They knew exactly where he came from. So they wanted to meet him. And it was interesting. The first question they gave them, this is what I often tell people, had nothing to do with punching and kicking. It was a shipboarding incident that we had where, um, you know, you see in the movies now all the time, the general public's pretty used to it now, the way, say, a special operations team or a SWAT team stacks up outside the door and then they come in. Well, they had a scenario like that. It was on a ship, and they were going through a, a door in a ship. is called a hatch, and they were going through the hatch. The second guy in got tied up by a bad guy, and he held up the rest of the train going in. The first guy that went through, he's fighting for his life. He's in there fighting for his life, and the rest of the guys can't get through the door. And this had been a, a problem that had plagued these guys. The scenario had plagued these guys for about six, seven years. Nobody had really come up with a viable answer. The guy that I brought in, he looked at that whole situation, lined everybody up, and this is a guy who he didn't keep up on military nomenclature, weapons, or anything like that. He just, you know, he, he actually had disdain for the military. He was one of McNamara's 100,000 and didn't think anybody that would actually have a career in the military, you had to be crazy. And um, and he particularly didn't like the Navy, you know, which was really well, funny. What's McNamara's 100,000? Uh, McNamara's 100,000 is uh, basically, uh, he, he arranged that 100,000 guys, uh, 100,000 kids from lower socioeconomic um, uh, areas were the first to be drafted and Jerry fell within that and um, uh, so here's this guy who isn't formally educated but he has he sees arcs and angles like nobody I ever knew like he would it'd be very difficult for him to write down information but he could draw it out for you he would draw pictures right away that were just amazing but I could see his mind working as these guys are just, uh, they, they didn't even get through the whole scenario and he stopped everybody, lined them up, had them mimic. And I remember because I brought him into a, a skiff, which is a compartmentalized information facility that you have and you had to sign them in. It's kind of like the Maxwell Smart type thing where you had to walk through all these mm -hmm. doors and these guys were grilling him. And all of a sudden he took over and he just lined everybody up, mimicked the second thing. 
the guy comes in and grabs the uh, the second the second uh, guy the way they they described it. And as they're doing it, Jerry basically just told the guy, okay, drop back and sit down. And the guy dropped back, sit down, and his weapon ended up going center line on the bad guy. It opened up the doorway, and everybody got in. So wait, I'm trying to picture it. So I'm the second guy go, trying to get in. Yep. Someone's holding me. Why can't, you, you I just knife set, why, why can't I just knife the guy holding me? Because there's no, the way the hatch was so close that it was, it was he had no movement. Okay, so he's like grabbing me, like in a so boxing grabbing, fight. So, so this guy's trying to use strength. Mm -hmm. And what Jerry quickly recognized was the physics of the situation saying, okay, instead of trying to overpower the guy, your weapon's right here. You have control of it. He had him drop back. And as he dropped back, like literally just sit down, all his weight goes forward. This guy goes like this, gets pulled out of the way. The weapon goes center line. He's able to kill the bad guy and everybody else is able to get in right away. Oh, interesting. So that was, a, and you know, it's a very, it's it's something that now people know, but back then nobody really really understood that, and that that's that was it, and they immediately got a pilot course going for this type of training. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. 
Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this. I hope you enjoy what I've been doing. I don't ask for a lot, but please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And my goal is to share this great content with as many people as possible. To see the show notes, just head on over to jamesaltature.com slash podcast. While you are there, you can join my free insiders list to get notified when I post a new podcast. Once again, thanks so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. A lot of the stories you talk about are obviously people who are not used to fighting. 
they're civilians for a better lack of a better word. They're in many cases smaller. A lot of it is, and I think this is also kind of almost a, a cliche, almost like a Bruce Lee style cliche, which is uh, use the energy and the force of the other person on your side. So in this case, he's using the strength of the other person to kind of pull that person down in order to get what he wants. Right. And so, and that seems like a lot of what uh, the solution is, is always use as much as possible, like almost like outsource the energy to the other person. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like that's a, a strong principle here. Yeah. And you want, you want to learn to use, you want, you want to create a situation where you can make physics and physiology meet badly. And that's, that's really that. And, and we can all. Physics do, and physiology meet badly. I like that phrase. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's, it's really what you're trying to replicate because all of us, we, we, uh, you know, when somebody says, well, I'm only say 90 pounds, what could I do? Well, do you want, does anybody want 90 pounds dropped on their throat? Does anybody want 90 pounds dropped in a lot of these vulnerable areas of the human body? If you learn to employ your body weight, which is what, you know, when you went back to that whole concept of the smaller guy being the most dangerous, really what we're, we're finding is if you, if you look at that situation, the smaller guy knows how to employ all of his body weight into these these vulnerable areas of the human body. And they understand that for pure survival. They don't want to compete on bigger, faster, stronger. And so they learn early on, you know, that that's the way they can survive. And and that's that's really essentially what we can teach just about everybody. And the great thing about using your body weight is the the world doesn't care. The the universe doesn't care if it's fat or if it's muscle. It's it's body weight. And so you know, we all have to work within our own human machine. You know, we all have different human machines and we have to understand how they operate. And, it, and it's really just learning to operate your own human machine and how you can get a result on somebody. So, 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 okay. So now, um, you, you're, you're going through military intelligence. Like, did you have to, you, have you ever been in a situation in, in, in the military where you had to, um, you use these things? Were you mostly training or training others? In the military, it's mostly training. It's when I got into private military contracting that I, I actually ended up using it. It was we were kind of like doing Blackwater work before Blackwater, mm. uh, mostly in South America. What what happened was, you know, people forget after after uh, Gulf War One, basically everybody left the military because there was there's was, there's was a huge drawdown during that time. Because you might have to go to war. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was not only that; it was like. A lot of the missions that the military is being forced to do, people didn't want to do. Um, and it was uh, not a great time to be in the military. So everybody left. And um, I, I was one of those. I left mainly because there wasn't special operations intelligence at that time. Um, had a very In the Navy especially, had a very limited uh, window for me. I would have to go back to the fleet if I wanted to advance and stay a career, and I had no interest in that. And because of this opportunity through the hand-to-hand training that I was doing, I became an instructor, I was able, I was offered a really cool game. I was supposed to go to Wall Street. I, my buddy wanted me to come out here, and um, I said, listen, I'm gonna take six months off, and I'm just gonna you know, enjoy, enjoy my time for a little bit, and then I'll, I'll come to New York. And within that six months, the my instructor, Jerry, called me up. He said, hey, I'm getting a lot of calls from corporate groups and they want us to training is I really don't know how to negotiate with these guys. Could you help me out and help me train? And so I said, sure. And so six months turned into 12 years, mm. you know, and it just took me on this path where we were, we were working with corporations. And the reason we were working with corporations was because a lot of times they hire ex special operations or ex special law enforcement people that we had trained. 
And they come back and say, hey, the unit really needs to be trained in these types of concepts. And then we get these corporate, you know, uh, training gigs. But we'd go to places like, you know, I did a lot of work in Venezuela. I did a lot of work in South America. Like what did you do in Venezuela? We were just training. We were training. We're actually working with the Venezuelan military at that point. They had a huge problem with narcos going to their borders and essentially taking over like very rich plantations owned by very wealthy Venezuelans. And there was a lot of violence going on. And so we were training through State Department. Back then, you had to be very careful how you were training because uh, you could be you could be prosecuted as a mercenary. Mm-hmm. So everything that we did had to be approved by State Department. And so we went through State Department reg. And technically, we were supposed to be training law enforcement. And the State Department would de- determine that yeah, this is a law enforcement group. Their mission wasn't law enforcement. Their mission was, you know, hunt and kill, basically, you know, terrorists, in their word, whoever terrorists fit. This um, is pre-Chavez. Pre-Chavez, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing what happened to that country once Chavez came in. And, and uh, basically everybody that I used to work with is either out of the country or dead. Mm. Um, but they were, they were going around and they were, the big threat back then was everything going on in Colombia. And you had lots of that. You also had a lot of Brazilian. Um, they would recruit a lot of kids from the favelas of, of Brazil, and they were just murderers. And one of the big things that they had a problem in Venezuela was they had uh, they had kids under seventeen as the top murderers because they couldn't be prosecuted as adults. And so here's here's this is a sort of random question again. Like, where are all this is just in the '90s or the OOs or whatever. Where are all the, these kids are now? You know, they're they're younger than me. Like, where are they now? Yep. I, I I guess most of them are dead or yep. in jail or whatever. But the ones who are alive, did any become just respectable businessmen? Or I'm sure some, so a few of them probably survived and were able to carve out you know normal lives. But they're they're the very few. Mm-hmm. It's an extremely violent culture. I would never want to go there. Like no. just because it's like like unlike the U.S., no one in the U.S. or very few people in the U.S. are trained from birth to just go out and kill people. Right. Like, I don't think I really want, people say, oh, you have to visit Brazil on this holiday or whatever. I don't really want to go any other place. Yeah. Like, this is the safest place to be right now. Yeah, it really is. I mean, um, you know, the the great thing about the U.S. is you pretty much know where to go and where not to go. It's very clear. And that's where it gets really, really gray overseas. Yeah, even when I visited, like, countries like, Argentina, which you think of almost as like a first world country, but it's not quite. You could just tell everyone's looking at you as, you know, it starts to get darker in the evening. Like people are looking what you're carrying, what your phone is, you know, and it doesn't really, and people are coming up to you and talking to you. It doesn't seem very friendly as opposed to here if someone comes up to you and talks to you. Yeah, well, Argentina had all the economic upturn too, so there's a desperation in Argentina as well. Um, And it's too bad because it's a beautiful country and and great people. but that's probably the big, it's so funny you're saying that. So people ask me all the time, what's the difference between training in the U.S. and training overseas? The U.S. is the only place where when I'm training people that I get anything having to do with legal questions. Like, is this legal? Is this self-defense? Is this, mm. you know, they get, there's a focus there. When I train overseas, they completely understand asocial. They understand mm. devoid of choice. Their questions are exactly where do I step? Exactly where do I hit? Because they've already made the decision. They understand. I know what you're talking about. You're talking about there. there's nobody coming to save me. If I don't take action, I'm basically participating in my own murder. We're very familiar with that type of violence here. We understand that. 
You're very careful in the book though of saying of not blaming the victim. But but right there you just said, uh uh, you know, if you don't take action when someone's attacking you, you're participating in your own murder, which is an interesting way to look at it. I think maybe in the US we don't think that way at all. Like right. we think there's a murderer and there's a victim. Right. And and the the context that I'm putting that in and, and I say, you know, I, I normally, and I probably didn't this time, but I normally say you're essentially, you're essentially doing that. It's if you don't have this knowledge base, if you don't understand, okay, this is one of these rare events when the tool of violence is ever useful. And if I don't use it right now, it, it would be the same. Like I tell people that the threshold to use the training that I'm talking about is if you had a firearm on you, you would feel justified, this threat that you're facing, you'd feel just, justified in emptying that firearm into that threat. That's how serious that we're talking about. Is that the, so just to answer the legal question, is that the gray area? Like, if you if you can use your gun, you can use any, any th resource. But sometimes, let's say someone is mugging you, I don't know, is it legal to use your gun on them? Well, that's, that's the whole, the, I, this is where I talk about antisocial aggression versus asocial violence. Antisocial aggression, you know, uh, to go back to that story of the, uh, the lawyer, um, he, what he experienced first when he was robbed by those two guys was antisocial aggression. Mm. He chose to use his social skills, meaning he complied, did everything they said, which is exactly what law enforcement tells you to do. And everybody loves the part of, that part of the story because they walk away and they leave and they think, oh, great, transactional. Um, what he wasn't prepared for was the Black Swan event where they came back. And they came back this time, there was nothing. They didn't want anything other than his life because they didn't want him to be able to identify them. And therefore, the only thing he could have done at that point was to protect himself was to injure them. You know, that was or the run. only thing. Well, run, but he they had run him down at that point. And so he was, he was backed up and he had no place to go at mm -hmm. that point. So again, my threshold for using this is uh, if you could have talked your way out of it, you would have. If you had an exit, you would have taken it by now. Um, if there was... You're devoid of choice. And when you're devoid of choice, you know, if you have to ask yourself, is this the time to use violence? It probably isn't the time, you know? And that's the biggest mm. problem. What I find is most people, and when I say most people, I say people when they come for self-defense training or whatever they imagine it is, they imagine scenarios that are inherently avoidable. So, so if someone came up to me and there's no gun or weapon and it's, dark and it's in a park or whatever and they say give me your wallet so i don't know if they have a gun or a weapon and i don't know how violent they're going to be right. but they're being certainly antisocial and aggressive right. i should just give them my wallet and then i should run as fast as i can you have the opportunity to do that mm -hmm. i never tell people what to do because mm -hmm. it's always for personal choice because could it turn asocial very quickly yeah it, it could um if i Am, am I allowed, so I'll ask the legal question, am I allowed to like, let's say I had a knife, am I allowed to knife them at that point? Well, that, that's probably where it would be, it would be the gray area that you're mm -hmm. talking about. You have to establish to, uh, first to the officers on the scene, you have to establish that you, you were in fear for your life, you know, that you really were facing imminent grievous bodily harm. And oftentimes they will look at the perpetrator and they'll look at you and they'll look at this guy and they go, rap sheet like you wouldn't imagine boom and they'll leave it right then and there because this guy probably has a history of assaulting people and doing things and they'll say yeah that's that's reasonable what you did um now if you're in a municipality that doesn't allow you to have knives or you're, you're, you're carrying an illegal weapon or something that's a whole other thing that you're gonna have to so, deal so, with so 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 and and you don't talk about knives and guns and things like that so you're more talking about using the body itself as as a weapon so am i allowed to um 
basically, you know, use my the the joint in my elbow to hit them in the throat and and knock them down and bash their head against the ground. Am I allowed to do that? Because you felt if if you feel it in that that threshold, meaning you feel like literally, I'm in fear for my life. If I don't take action, I'm going to be facing grievous bodily harm, and that's that's where you have to be. And the fact that you feel you have no choice, you know, any choices that you had, you would have taken earlier. That's the biggest thing I try to train people. And the reason the reason I like to train people when when they come and train me or read this book is it forces you to think about things ahead of time. It forces you to consider things because most people will mm. tell me this. The one thing the book does a really good job in and the training does a really good job in is teaching you to trust your nonverbal communication that's going on in your body. Our, we communicate, our bodies communicate to us in so many nonverbal ways, you know. And it's the classic hair standing up in the back of my neck, queasy stomach, all those things. That's your body screaming at you that something's wrong. And But, but most people never experience any kind of bad situation, so they don't know. They don't have the experience. The, and that's where the, the, the confusion comes in because everybody that's had a situation when I've talked to them, they've always said to me, I knew something was wrong here, meaning they were getting those nonverbal cues. But there might have been social awkwardness, meaning, mm -hmm. oh, I, I, I'll embarrass myself if I do this, or I'm, I'm being judgmental of this right, person. But if someone's or, walking too close to you, yeah. you're not going to suddenly jab them in the neck. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and my... My response to that is no, but you could exit yourself out of that situation. There, right. there, this is where you still have a chance to exit yourself. And yes, it might you might look foolish. You might you have to risk that. It's okay to do that because what happens is people say, "I knew I felt something here, but I didn't do anything." And then it got to here, and it was already too late. Mm. And that's that's where they come see me, you know, at that point. And so I, you know, I really inculcate people. The reason it's worthwhile to look at this material is because when you realize, if I ignore all the really good information that people tell me about situational awareness and you know doing things ahead of time, the only thing that's going to get me out of these situations is I'm going to have to do some real damage to the human body. And I'm going to have to be able to live with that. And, and I'm also going to face the fact that it could be done to me at that point because I didn't listen over here. And so what's really cool is when people come through, that my biggest feedback that I get that is most, you know, uh, when I'm training general public, the, you know, the people, I, the best responses that I get are weeks after the training where people, you know, will, will write me or call me up and say, hey, I really appreciate the training. You know, I used to do X and it was really taking a big risk. And I didn't realize I was taking a big risk by doing this, meaning maybe they were taking a shortcut that was kind of dicey. Or maybe leaving their door unlocked. Yeah, things like that. Not having an alarm. And I don't do that anymore. I've changed my behavior. It's the behavior modification because my goal with people is not to turn them into some super ninja. I don't want them to use the physical information. But the physical information is what inculcates the behavioral changes. Yeah, and I think a big part of your book is, okay, although you do, the book's title When Violence is the Answer, you show all the points where people need to like you know, are, are easily breakable that people might not be aware of. But I think a big part, a big lesson too that I take away is, hey, prevent the violence, period. Like, get an alarm in your house, get a dog. So that the, and and, and the, the criminals, they don't want to, they're, they're probably mentally weak in some ways. Why they're, that's why they're in that, that's why they're criminals. And so they, they're not going to get into a situation that's pot potentially problematic for them. 
They don't want to. They don't want to attack a house with a big dog, for instance. Absolutely. Well, it, to, to that point, um, in you know, I'm, ba I'm based out of Las Vegas, and we had a recently we had a judge uh, in the last year or so that was uh, had a home invasion, was tied up at his house, beaten to within an inch of his life in front of his wife. They, they assumed that he had um, golden currency in a, in a safe that he didn't. For some reason, they thought that, and it was horrific. Now, this is a three a three-gated community, meaning to get to his part of the community, you had to go through three gates mm. to, to get there. I didn't even know such a thing existed. Yeah, Vegas has some amazing you know, properties like that. Um, the interesting part was when they finally caught the crew that did this, they, at their house, they had, they, had a map, they had maps of various neighborhoods, but they had his neighborhood. They had circled every house that had a dog with a big mm. X through it. And I'm not talking like, you know, a big Rottweiler or anything like that or a attack dog. It was anybody that had a dog, you know, down to, you know, a little chihuahua or something. Because a dog is so unpredictable, they can't control it. The dog's going to be that early warning system that, that goes in there. And you say that's even more powerful than an alarm system. Yeah, because they can't bypass it, you know? Oh, I hate um, dogs too. I I, oh, I get it. I, I totally, I, I never tell people, hey, you have to do that. I'm just telling you, here's the facts, you know, when, when it comes to that. And, and, they avoid dogs like the plague. Mm. You know, it's just they don't like you said, James. They don't. They don't want to work. They want the easy hit. And so, the more you can create these rings around yourself that make it more difficult for you, um, you know, just like here in New York, uh, it's really any urban environment. But one of the biggest threats right now is anybody that immerses themselves in their smartphone, their earbuds. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. the number one thing for that here. And um, and you see it all the time. It's funny, you know, being in the city again, walk out. The energy here is amazing, and you walk around. But walking the streets it is amazing to me to see all these people just lost. They're literally giving up two of their primary senses. They're giving up their vision and their hearing, in uh, just immersed with people, you know, all around. And I understand it. I, I, I get it. I understand how hey, it's a good use of your time. Meaning you can do. That. I love to listen to podcasts when I'm when I'm walking and doing things. I get that, but I usually at least leave one ear free when I'm doing that. Um, just because you don't want to completely give up your situational awareness. Um, so, so, so let's say, let, let's get down to brass tactics now. Um, is that the phrase, brass tactics? Uh, let's say I'm walking into my building, walking into my apartment, and I'm, I'm, I'm opening the door, someone... Start. I didn't recognize or whatever. Someone pushes me from the back into my apartment. What's what should I do? Well, at that point, you know, okay, they've got you in your house, you know. So they're they're trying, and they don't want to keep you out in the public area. So right. those are coming in. So right then and there, that shows enough intent to where you have to be concerned. Right. Time. Um, I think that part's obvious. Yeah, that, that's really <laughs> obvious. And so now, and now it's like, what do you have in the toolbox? And what we do with clients, which is different, is we don't train techniques to people because everybody's going to experience violence in a unique fashion, meaning I have no idea which way this is going to happen to you. So rather than saying, okay, you turn to your left, you strike here, kick here, punch here, what I do is I show the vulnerable areas of the human body, and then I give you sight pictures off of that and so say so like for instance throat, throat. You, you've talked about throat solar plexus groin but yeah. then you have a whole map of the body and right in the book. And, and there are various areas you know um there, there's there's like approximately 70 areas and some of them have are bilateral some of them have two areas that are the the same type of target like a, your collarbone you have two collarbones you know your clavicles but i only count it once as a target mm -hmm. um 
So there's approximately 70 areas on the body that get a response that we're talking about. And what we're talking about is we're talking about when, um, when you injure that area of the human body, it creates enough of a stimulus that the, ba- the, the brain is not involved in the reaction to the trauma. What I mean by that is we've all experienced if you've touched a hot surface, your hand automatically comes off. And what that, what that is happening is the hand moves and then you look and then the brain registers, oh, I burnt myself. If we had to wait until the brain got that information and processed it, you'd severely burn yourself mm-hmm. at that point. So it's a, it's a protective mechanism within the body where the spinal reflex, you know, basically the impulse gets halfway up the spine, but the trauma amplitude's so great that it sends down a, a follow-up to say, move it. Get it and out of the way. Could anyone like? Can I like? I'm. I've never been in a fight in my life. Can I be in a it, fast enough to to do what is needed if someone's a, a criminal intending to harm me? Yeah. Well, it's not. It, what I try to tell people is, don't imagine the competitive situation. Imagine, imagine the opportunity situation. Mm-hmm. Meaning, a predator gives you an opportunity because they don't fear you, so they bring something a vulnerable part of their body close to you, and you can still think and move. And they don't realize that that's a threat. They're trying to intimidate you. And then because you know now, oh, this is, this is you know, say the throat. That's a vulnerable part of the body. I know I can get to it. I know I can use my forearm right now to get right into right, get right in and crush the larynx. You know, I, I know how to do that. I know I'm going to start the asphyxiation process. Gosh, I'm so afraid to even like thinking that way because I feel like if I'm thinking that way, they could start thinking that way. I almost don't want to give them the idea to do it to me. Yeah, well, they, if they, I fail. They, but the, the idea on that is... Um, we never know what the other guy's thinking. And so we can only control what we think. And that's why it's so important that we focus on that. Meaning, I want my client, if they've been, say, thrown up against the wall and hands are around their throat, I don't want them to think, oh my God, I'm being choked. I want them to think, oh, thank God, I know where his hands are. Mm. Now what's available to me? And you immediately look outward. The people that survive are the people that the first thing that hops out of them is an injury to the other person. And I'm talking like some of those unlikely people that, that we've trained. I mean, that's just it. It's not... Uh, these you know these gifted athletes that I train or anything, and, and the reason I'm so intent on every class, every every live class that I train is statistically somebody's going to use the information, and I never know who it is. And to date, it's always been some of the most unlikely people that they've had to use it. You know, um, like what's a, a story? You can even tell a story from the book, or uh, yeah, well, in the book I talk about I talk about one of my clients, and she was uh, she's a great description because she's a slightly built woman she had experienced assault she'd been assaulted two times prior to coming to my training training was very difficult for her she literally had to come off the mats a couple of times because there was a lot of processing that she was doing we walked her through it and she literally was one of those people you know she had a therapy dog really nice lady but she was one of those people that at the end i've i've gone to some of my other instructors we all said to each other i hope she gets a pass i hope this one doesn't ever have to deal with it Sure enough, within a year, it was probably about eight months after the training happened to her again at a Home Depot. She got she was loading in some flowers that she bought, just put her dog. She has a German Shepherd therapy dog, not an aggressive dog, but in there. She just put him in his cage when a guy came up behind her and said, "Can I help you?" And she said, "The hair went up in the back of my neck, and I knew right away it's happening again." He lifted her up off her feet, but he made the mistake of just grabbing her her. Um, her torso not pinning her arms mm. but she realized she had her concealed carry and her first thought was up oh, it's not available to me it's not in my hand it's not available to me that's just one of the things that we talk about and she said but i do know i you know she immediately thought elbow and there's his neck and she came you know 
just turned into him. She didn't try to get away. She tried to get into him and she threw everything she had into the side of the neck. Side of the neck has two nerves, an artery and a vein. So you can interrupt blood flow. You can either cause like a, a vasovagal response where the guy basically faints and goes to sleep or you can have a concussion and a knockout. She essentially caused the vasovagal because the guy just dropped her and he started to, to you know fold down. As he was going down, the second thing she saw was his knee and she just rode his knee. She just jumped right on top and stomped his knee, separating all of the, the cartilage. I mean, you know, flamingoing basically his, his kneecap. And that was it. He hit the ground and he was screaming, holding onto his knee. And then, you know, he passed out from that. And she realized, oh, okay, he's non-functional. Security comes down. Two other people that were in the parking lot came by and helped her real quick. And of course, the guy immediately, you know, comes back up. He says, she assaulted me. She assaulted me. And she said, she said, she goes, you know, I thought to myself, oh, he's, he's actually kind of right. You know, I did, you know, I did attack him. But you know, it was quick when they when they looked at the um, um, the footage, the uh, the security cam footage. He had the van, he had everything ready. He had he was in there. He's going to take her to a secondary scene, He'd probably you know repeatedly rape her and and kill her. Um, she was able to save her life. The police officers, when they got there, their response was, "Why didn't you shoot him? You could have shot him." And she said, "Well, he was no longer a threat." You mean after he was already down on the ground? Yeah, she saw that he she 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 said you would have had every right you know, based off of who this guy was to do that. And she said, yeah, but I saw he was no longer a threat. I was done, you know, and that's- And maybe legally there would have been a problem if they looked at the footage and he's already down. Possibly, possibly there would have, but uh, based off of uh, based off of uh, women um, and, and the attacks that they faced, she possibly could have, you know, been able to do that with no repercussions at that point. Um, you know, just saying, hey, I'm still in fear for my life. You know, she- because she had been taught in the injury of the human body, she knew what she did to the guy. And she was able to sit there and say, yeah, no, he's done. You know, he's not going to be able to get up. He's not going to be able to do these things. Um, and that was the decision, you know, that she made. And help got there pretty quick. You know, she, yeah. was, she was lucky. Um, what, about, what about a situation where, um, I mean, a lot of people have guns. So what if, what if I'm pushed into my apartment and someone has a gun right at me? Mm -hmm. And... When I never understand, like, obviously there's lots of things you can do where they're going to fire and miss. Even if the gun's right at your head, yeah. you could just drop, drop down and they don't know what to do. Right. But is that what I should do? Like what, what, what should be my, what should I be thinking in that situation? Everything resides in the, 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 the weapon system that you have to worry about is the active human brain. Hmm. Um, it's not that the gun, you don't respect the gun, but let me give you, let me give you another story from the book. Um, we had a, a, a incident in a Walmart in California where a, a officer um, is picking up a shoplifter and he's putting the female shoplifter into his car. Walmart security is right here. He notices out of the corner of his eye a guy with a hoodie walking towards him, you know, just imminently. And he, and he just, he's a 17 year vet. He knew something was up. Gives the guy a verbal, guy keeps coming. He goes, Show me your hands because both of his hands were in his hoodie pockets. And he pulls out from his hand a knife. And he shows the knife. Officer immediately recognizes, okay, he's too close. I can't get my gun out in time to shoot him. I'm going to go into use my defensive tactics. And, and by the way, I think that's an important point. Knife is off in a close distance. Knife is often stronger than a gun. Yeah, it, it was the idea of the, the manipulation that it takes to get your gun out and accurately use it, and especially if you're concealed carry. Very few people that that have concealed carry. When I talk to them. They don't practice on a regular basis of drawing their weapon, pulling it out, and they don't they don't put the time in to actually know how long does it take to deploy my weapon, you know. And and what's scary is they talk about the twenty one foot rule, meaning they did it years ago. Um, there was a there was a, a study done by a, a guy Dennis Tuller 
who was training people at 21 feet. That's the only reason he used 21 feet, it was seven yards. And somebody asked him, go, hey, do you think a guy with a knife could run me down before I get my gun out? He goes, oh, I don't know, let's check it out. And he was shocked. He was shocked at just about every time, you know, the person was got, you know, stabbed to death. So they started talking about 21 foot rule. I have an interview with him. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just to explain the 21 foot rule, a policeman is not allowed to take the gun out of his holster unless the uh, potential criminal is within 21 feet. Is that the 21 foot rule? No, the, the, the idea was a knife is a threat um, as close as 21 feet. Okay, because I think it's been translated into legal terms now. But. Yeah, and 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 they they use that. They've used it in case law on a lot of mm -hmm. things as the reason of why you deployed your weapon and shot the individual. But the more useful knowledge from that is, he said, "There's nothing special about 21." The guy that did, invented the drill, he goes, "There's nothing special about 21 feet." He goes, "As a matter of fact, he said, depending on how you carry your weapon, if you have a deep cover carry or something like that, he goes, we've had it upwards of 65 feet." that people have been able to be run down and stabbed to death before they could deploy their weapons. Mm. And so that's just, and, that, and so my whole idea on that is, this is your primary weapon, your body is right. all your ancillary tools, and everything else is a luxury. Everything else is, a, is an ancillary tool that's a luxury, if you can get to it. Um, so this officer recognized, okay, he, he's, he's got a knife, I gotta take care of this. So he goes and he executes a, a it's a double 90 turn twist on, on, the, um, on the wrist and it requires a lot of strength to do it the way they do it. But he executed it perfectly and he literally, he could feel the, the, the tissue giving away in the, in the, in the, um, uh, the wrist. He felt the, the connective tissue give as so he, he was going. he ran up to this guy. Ran up to him, hit him. You know, now the back of the cop car is right here. He cuts him right before that. He turns and he executes this double 90 degree turn on the wrist, snapping the wrist that's holding the knife, throwing the guy up on the back of the car. Okay, so he's there. Excellent move that he did. Only problem was out of the other pocket, came the five-shot revolver hmm. that he emptied into the officer. And so he got him four times out of five, hit him. Then <clears throat> the Walmart security guard comes in, and to his credit, you know, he goes and he grabs the revolver. And now he pulls the now empty revolver out of the perp's hand. This guy takes his mangled hand that's still holding onto the knife, grabs the knife, and then stabs that officer twice. So then the story goes on, and, and, and fast forward everything, uh, an explorer scout that's there helps the officer who's on the ground shot get to his weapon and ends up shooting the bad guy as he's trying to pull a rifle out of the cop car. And he's heroic and, and all of that. And all that's very true. I mean, it was amazing what this officer was able to do, the presence of mind and everything. What everybody missed in the story, though, was that both this guy and the security guard were trained to think the tool was the problem. Mm. Whereas the weapon was the active human brain. This guy, I mean, I imagine a guy who sits there and his forethought is, I'm going to show him the knife because I know he's going to focus on the knife. And that's going to give me the opportunity to shoot him. Why Why did this guy just go up to a cop anyway with a knife? He was he was working with a girl that was the, the, shoplifter. Uh, the shoplifter. It was their uh. boyfriend, girlfriend. And he's this little guy, just a little guy. He literally had devil horns tattooed on his hand. His hand. He's like a former white supremacist or something that came in. Um, and he had a history, you know, of violence that, that was there. But the person, when I, when I ever think of, when I go to train, I always think of that person as my avatar, meaning somebody that's willing to give up a tool in order to, you know, kill him. Because until you shut off the human brain, until the human brain is no longer able to control the body, you are potentially in danger. 
at that point. And that's what I try to, to, to tell people. So when I train my law enforcement officers, when I train the military, they understand that. But I really get to my civilians. And she saw the woman we were talking about, even though his brain was still active, he was so busy dealing with his injury to the knee and the structure that was broken that she understood he can't get up, he can't move, and he doesn't have any tools. It's over, hmm. you know? And um, So let's say someone, let's take you, Let's say someone, you're walking into a, an office or something, someone, trip, you didn't expect it like this, somehow you didn't hear them, they trip you, push you forward, you fall over, and uh, and then they pull out a gun, and they're, you're on the ground, and they're holding the gun to you, and you suspect, with good reason, that they're going to fire the gun at some point. Yeah. What would, you, what, what would you be thinking? The only thing that changes anything in my favor is to get to his body in, in effect an injury. It's the shitty answer nobody wants. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the answer that there, there's no magical thing. Everything that changes things in your favor resides on the other person's body and you have to get to that. You mm -hmm. know, there, there's a, um, again, best information coming from the worst people. In LA, uh, there was a, a gang member buying some groceries at a little mini mart. Exits on the other side. He's at the cash register. About three, uh, you know, three aisles are, are in there. Another gangbanger comes through, passes the aisle where the cash register is, looks down, sees this guy. They're from rival gangs. He immediately is pulling his jacket up to get his gun out. This guy who has his doesn't have a gun on him has two grocery bags. The footage is he drops the grocery bags and he just starts running straight towards the guy. He knows. This guy pulls the gun out, gets five shots off, hits him all five times. Hmm. This guy knocks him to the ground and beats him with his hands to death. The 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 uh, five shots were not life threatening shots that hit him. But what's interesting about that is, and this is a you know, you sit there and go, oh my God, this is savage. But what was interesting was he under you could see it in his eyes. The only chance I get is to get to him. He couldn't run around the There's aisle. There's no place for him to go. There's no place for him to go where he was at. Anything he did, he would have been turning his back, and it's much easier to kill people when they're running away. So, so a couple questions. One is, I think I would have thought to use the bags filled with groceries, like they're all cans or whatever. Why not just start throwing, throwing them? Yeah, throw them at them or, yeah. or something as you're running towards it. The only problem was such a narrow aisle, you'd probably be stepping over, you know, like tuna cans and stuff like that if you're, if you're going. And then the other thing is, was he legally in the right given that he killed the other guy, but but I guess he was shot five well, times. He was shot five so, times, yeah. So, and then, how, are, are most gunshots really not killer shots? Well, it's, it's it, it, what's interesting with with, uh, with guns, it, it's just like anything else, if it doesn't hit something vital. And that's really where we come back down to the anatomy aspect. You know, in the, the, the thing that predicated a lot of the really intense study of anatomy happened on a prison murder, I think it was in the late 80s, early 90s, that the Aryan brothers were doing where they were contracted to kill this one guy. And if I remember right, he came, they, they came and they knifed the guy. But by the time the prison SWAT team, the CERT team got there, they were able to save the guy and then he was put into protective custody. Well, that's a huge, you know, that, that was a huge uh, um, problem for the Aryan Brotherhood because they didn't go good on their, on their, um, contract you know whoever they were, whoever contracted them and you can't allow that after that an edict came down telling everybody you're going to study anatomy and here's where it's at mm -hmm. and this is what we got to concentrate on and they had to learn what areas of the human body are most um can we rapidly um bleed somebody out and kill them in time through so that the cert team can't save them that was that was the impetus for them really looking in depth and, and learning how to do that um, and so same thing with, with shooting. We can survive a lot of nonspecific trauma and gunshot wounds. 
um, you can't survive anything hitting, you know, that's, that's vital on, mm. on you. And so the, he just hit nonspecific areas of the human body that hadn't, didn't have a vital order, didn't cause a lot of, uh, you know, a, a high, you know, uh, uh, vascular damage and, you know, didn't bleed out. So, so fascinating. Um, but that also goes back to, that also goes back to another thing too. There's this, this idea that, you know, you have to be very suspicious of stats, um, because, People will say, "Oh, the murder rate's never been lower," you know, and, and we're not as violent as we used to be. And you have to ask yourself: Is the murder rate lower because we're less violent, or is the murder rate lower because our me te medical technology is that much better? Things that would have killed us literally five years ago, mm. people are surviving now. So the statistic goes down to, you know, an assault rather than um, a murder. Do you think the assault and, rate's higher? Yeah, I, th I think I, th I don't think violence has changed at all. I think I think we were as violent as we ever were. Mm. Um, I think that just you know medical technology has gotten that much better. You know that we're, that we're there. So, but again, in the U.S., a lot of it is very much uh, very much area oriented. You know, whereas you'll have things overseas where you have political violence and you have uh, rampant criminal violence that hits all sectors. Like if you go to Mexico, some of the nicest, nicest neighborhoods in Mexico are getting hit just as much as the poorest areas are getting hit. You know, so violence is. I like to. T I like to say. Is that because there's no cops around, or yeah, they don't have the same systems that that we have, and they're they're dealing with a lot less. You know, a lot less of the traditional law enforcement and protection that we have that we enjoy here in the U.S. As much as it's criticized. We're um, we're very lucky to have the system we have. I mean, a lot of the people when they when they criticize, and I'm not saying there's not legitimate criticism for um, some things that are going on. All I ask people is put it in context, travel a little bit, and and talk to people in other countries. And you know, you want to talk about corruption, you want to talk about you know problems, and you want to talk about not having you know anybody to call. You know, that's not the case you know, here in the U.S., you know, the vast majority of law enforcement agencies that we're dealing with will respond and will will do the right thing. Um, we're very fortunate worldwide to say that we have that, mm. you know. Well, in, in, in your book, I mean, there's t tons of stories, tons of uh, diagrams. There's diagrams of the human body, you know, showing all the vulnerable points. There's diagrams, skeletons. This is really comprehensive i think much more than than your prior books on on the subject so uh when violence is the answer is the name of the book and the subtitle uh learning how to do what it takes when your life is at stake i think for myself i think i have to do a lot of the pre the pre-game making sure that the violence doesn't even occur like doing the alarm system type of thing and just being a little bit more careful when i when i walk around um but uh, Tim Larkin is the author, and you also do training. Where, how do people contact you for for training and stuff like that? Basically, they can go to my website. They can go to uh, whenviolenceistheanswer.com or timlarkin.com. Timlarkin.com or whenviolenceistheanswer.com. And one quick question: You think any of uh, you think it's possible to be like a Jason Bourne? Yeah. Like when you see those movies, you like that? Ah, it's trivial. It, the only thing with with uh, with those movies is they don't really under they don't really show just how effective injury is. They act like the body can take a lot more strikes than it really can. I mean, real violence is very boring to watch for the most part. Um, you know, I, I go back to I think it was John Ford wanted to film Pancho Villa and he he wanted to get war footage, and so Pancho Villa brought him to the front line, let him film war footage, and it was too boring for him to use mm -hmm. because people just got shot and they dropped. You mm -hmm. know, and and that's essentially how it is with violence. If you want to. The differentiation is from a Jason Bourne, I would say go watch a Sopranos, 
you know, mm. or watch uh, like something like History of Violence or things. That's closer, as far as media is concerned, that's closer to what real violence looks like. Um, and it, it's, there's nothing, Jason Bourne, you're still, it, it's very active and you're very involved in it and it's kind of a good give and take. Real violence is, you know, one guy gets hit and the other guy just goes down. Mm. It's, it's boring. Well, I, sometimes he's just hitting people and they just go down. But maybe also I wonder if they're hit, he's hitting people so hard he could probably kill them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing. They don't show the effect. If if, if they, he really did the strike that they were just showing, it was a much more devastating result than what they're showing on screen. Hmm. All right. Well, Tim Larkin, again, When Violence is the Answer, thanks once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks. And for anyone who like this podcast, which is immensely useful and valuable information to even save your life, although I hope it doesn't come to that, for anyone who like this podcast, please subscribe to the James Altucher Show on either iTunes or Google, wherever it is, Stitcher, wherever it is you get the podcast, subscribe, and uh, hopefully each podcast will be as valuable as this one. Thanks. Next time on The James Altucher Show. I didn't go on stage with the conscious goal like I'm pursuing comedy. I just was going to these open mic nights and I just got this little itch to just go, oh, I could go up there. I mean, I could just sign up for this and they'll let me up there, like let anyone up there. And yeah, so I did it. So I remember feeling uncomfortable because I guess I, in my mind, I still wanted to be in a band and... At some point, I think it was like eight months in, where I was like, I guess, I guess I'm doing this. And it's, it's weird, because it's weird to do something that you didn't really plan on. And along the way, too, it must be frustrating. I mean, there's a luck factor, too, in the sense that some people get sitcoms, some people totally explode upwards, or for, for all the right reasons or wrong reasons. What was happening in the early stages that kept you going, or thinking, maybe I should quit this? Weirdly, I don't think I ever said I'm thinking about quitting, which I guess is pretty telling. Oh, okay. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.